Well, first, I want to check. Diana, are you safe at this time? Is everything okay where you are? Yeah, just a few seconds before our meeting, our air alert has ended, so it's everything okay right now. Wow. That's so great to hear. Yeah, for sure. Moscow says it launched a massive retaliatory strike in response to an attack last week in Russia's Bryansk region, which borders Ukraine. Thank you so much. When I uh, first heard about the idea of this project, I was so excited to just share what I'm living in. Today's wave of attacks. What's actually happening in Ukraine for more than one year. In the crosshairs and dying. They are destroying our city. I go to bed and don't know if I will wake up the next day. The assault included 81 missiles plus exploding drones and killed at least six people. Hundreds of thousands more lost power. Well, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine has entered its second year, and it continues to drag on with no end in sight. I heard a very loud explosion. It's one meter left or right, and it could have been my apartment. I have no words. On this side of the Atlantic, the main concern seems to be the wider ramifications of this conflict. How can we sit here? Will it destabilize the European Union? And allow this to happen. Disrupt the global economy? Say the missiles damaged energy infrastructure in This cannot go on. Exacerbate already tense US-China relations? I am astonished. Chinese President Xi Jinping has arrived in Moscow for his first visit since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. But for Ukrainians like Diana Razumova, who lives in Kharkiv near the eastern front of the war, fearing for your life is a daily reality. You know, every day I have seen ruined houses and Russian tanks. Every day I have heard explosions, really terrifying explosions, because I'm living near the border with Russia. And it was so scary. This is Democracy in Danger. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Steve Parks, sitting in for Siva. And today we're revisiting the devastating consequences of Vladimir Putin's campaign to bring Ukraine to its knees. A victory lap of sorts for President Putin, driving himself through Mariupol. So far, the Russian leader's plan has failed, but the cost has been tremendous. City in May, damaging or destroying nearly all of its buildings. Since February 24, 2022, some 200,000 Russian troops have died. On the Ukrainian side, foreign observers estimate 120,000 soldiers have been killed. The civilian death toll to date could be as high as 20,000. The International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for Putin for alleged war crimes. And more than 8 million Ukrainian refugees are now scattered around Europe and beyond. Including the abduction of thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia. Today, we're going to hear from a couple of brave people living in direct contact with this war. And we're going to learn what they're doing to lay the groundwork for a safer life, a freer life in both Ukraine and in Russia. The first is the high school student whose voice you heard a moment ago. Hi, my name is Jana. I'm 16 years old. I'm recording from Kharkiv, Ukraine. And today's date is March 14, 2023. And Rebecca Barry, our assistant producer, caught up with Diana last week and is in the studio with us now. Rebecca, welcome. Thanks, Will. Rebecca, tell us about Diana. Who is she? Yeah, so Diana is a student originally from Mariupol. This is a city in the south that suffered terrible losses early in the war. 
It was pummeled and occupied by the Russian forces. Ukraine had to surrender the city in last May. Diana left Mariupol for Kharkiv when she was younger, back before Russian-backed separatists began fighting the Ukrainian government in 2014. But she still has a lot of family in Mariupol. I have uh, communicated with them, you know, like once per week because their connection was really bad and they don't have electricity for two months, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And also there were a lot of Russians in their city already, so they cannot share with me all the truth. Kharkiv is in the northeast. It's relatively close to the border with Russia. Just days before Diana spoke to us, there were missile strikes there and around the country. We got in touch with her because she's participating in a sort of intellectual exchange with American students, actually in one of Steve's English courses here at UVA. So Steve, would you like to say something about that course and how it's set up? Sure. It's an advanced writing course. The idea of the course is to put students of the same generation in contact with their peers internationally, young adults who are in war zones, conflicts, living under authoritarian regimes. The class is actually talking to students in the Ukraine and in Myanmar. The end result will be a book that we will publish and circulate globally. And Rebecca, I think you had a chance to um, put one of my students, Lena Freyhat, in a Zoom conversation with Diana, right? That's correct. My name is Lena. I'm 20 years old, and I'm from Vienna, Virginia. Lena is a second-year student here at UVA, and she had a lot to say about the opportunity to engage with students from all over the world and have conversations about democracy. And so connecting with Diana was a real highlight for her, I think, of this year. I really value speaking to people who've had different experiences. And so Lena is somebody who's lived abroad. She went to international school in Qatar. I'm a firm believer that our experiences make us who we are. And Diana was really excited to hear about that. You know, for me, it seems something absolutely unbelievable. I felt a really similar thing hearing about your story. I I just was in awe of, of your drive to move forward. And so it makes what is wonder, it you and Lena learned from speaking with Diana about what her life has been like in the past year? Yeah, Diana in particular had a vivid recollection of what the early days of the war was like. And actually, I'm going to let Lena tee up that part of the conversation. Can you kind of walk me through, you know, from the beginning of the conflict to now, what can you tell me as someone who is kind of outside of that sphere? Yeah, you know, uh, when everything was starting, I just, I didn't believe in it. In evening February 23, I was going to sleep and I just wrote to all my friends, oh, tomorrow we will meet in school. In this weekend, we will uh, have a meeting on some projects. And when this Thursday started, 24 February 2022, I woke up not because of explosions, as a lot of people in my city, but I woke up because of messages on my phone, Diana, are you safe? And I just, I didn't understand anything. So Diana was describing to us how there was this count where every day they would keep track and they would say, this is the third day of the invasion, this is the fourth day of the invasion. But for her, it didn't really hit home until several months later. And you know, when there were 100th day of the war, I started to understand it's real war. Like, you know, I, I couldn't believe in it for a really long time. Yeah, that, that sense of like 
coming to understand what's happening was also true of my students who were corresponding with Diane and her classmates. Over the weeks, they learned that all of the students they're writing with are dispersed throughout Ukraine because of the violence they had to flee where they originally living. And in the last email from Diana's teacher, she highlighted that the students might be a bit late responding to my UVA students because they'd just been bombed and they had no internet, no electricity, but they promised to get the work done. And I wonder, how does Diana handle sort of these day-to-day pressures of the war while still trying to have somewhat of a normal life? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Deanna, first and foremost, is still a student. And so I got the sense that she's putting her schoolwork first. She is staying hugely organized. She tells us she has a timetable to make sure that she's keeping up with her schoolwork. She's also an activist. She started a project through her school providing online therapy for young people all across Ukraine who have been traumatized by the war. And she's been helping on the front lines with her stepfather. Uh, when the full-scale war started from the first days, me and my dad, we started making supplies for citizens in Kharkiv. And we have supplied humanitarian aid to the people from the territories which were bombed the most. And um, in Kharkiv, we have one district that is absolutely ruined. And there we brought this aid. And then a summer, when I felt the scale of this tragedy for Ukraine, I created a project for Ukrainians with psychological help because it's really hard. I'm still scared of different thousands of explosions and uh, of uh, power outages. So, you know, I still try to do what I could do every day. Wow. So she's taken up the mantle of humanitarian work in the midst of all of this. That can't be easy for such a young person. No, it isn't. And she discussed with us a moment for her that was a turning point in her understanding of how much information needs to get out to people around the world. She has relatives, as we mentioned at the top of the show, who are still in Mariupol, a place that used to have more than 400,000 residents. It is now, by estimates, down to about 100,000 due to how many evacuations there have been. And one day I have started... And she ran into a woman... And I got to know that she was from Mariupol, my home city. Who was willing to talk about the scale of the destruction. In this city, there were no minutes without uh, an explosion. And the crimes that have been committed there in ways that her relatives were not forthcoming to her about. And so Diana spoke to this woman who told her exactly what conditions have been like, and they sounded horrible. Like, you know, people just living in basement for months where people cannot eat anything. It was really hard for me to hear it. And this conversation took her from writing notes about her experience to writing a full-fledged creative essay. And I started writing an essay from the perspective of the person who is living in Mariupol. And this is an essay that you can still read in English on Medium. And guys, it is so compelling. I I just want to read to you a little bit of that essay. We were sitting, as always, in the bomb shelter when the Russian soldiers came in. At first, they checked all our phones, or rather, those that were charged. They killed everyone who had any Ukrainian things on their phones. My friend... A few women and several men were killed in front of my eyes. Other men were drafted into the occupier's troops. Why must innocent people go fight others? And you know, what strikes me as soon as I finish this passage is that 
when she talks about innocent people going to fight others, it's left a little ambiguous whether she's referring to the Ukrainians who have just been drafted or the Russians who have also been drafted and sent into this war against their will. So one of the things I've learned from um, working with advocates is how hard they try not to demonize their opponent. Because at one point, they want to live in peace. And if they demonize them, they're never going to be able to find that common humanity. And this is something my students have a very hard time understanding, why the advocates are full of rage and anger at the folks who are doing these incredible acts of atrocity. So I'm just wondering, how did Lena react to what she learned about Diana's life and her circumstances that she's living in? I think she was really inspired by the degree to which Diana is able to take up activism in her immediate community. For Lena, she talked about how conversation and engaging in dialogue was really important to her. But I think she came away from this wanting to take a more active role, finding ways to start proposing solutions or tackling problems that have often been overlooked in the immediate community. One aspect of your story that really stuck out to me was this kind of drive to to continue to create impact on those around you. You know, a large part of my personal identity is the fact that I'm Palestinian. I grew up hearing and kind of experiencing the occupation. Um, So I think we have a little bit of a responsibility to speak up about certain things and kind of be active. And I think 10 to 20 years down the road, I would like to be in a position where I'm doing good impacting those that are around me, whatever that may be. I don't think I have a specific image, but I think I just would like to be making an impact. And what about Deanna? What are her hopes for the future? Deanna has really high hopes for herself. She talked about wanting to join the UN in the future, become a politician in Ukraine, fight for human rights. And she has recently won a scholarship, which will allow her to continue her education in the United States. I really hope that for our future, for Ukrainian future, of this terrible war and this terrible crimes against humanity stop. You know, we still need to fight. We still need to work to make Ukraine peaceful again. And I'm proud to help my country, that my help is needed. So I have started looking more deeper in the problems that exist, and not only about my priorities, but I have started to think more global. And in my personal future, I would like to work with uh, world communities and fighting for human rights on different international diplomatic platforms. I just, I've really, really enjoyed um, speaking to you, Deanna. I think you're so well-spoken, and I think it was really just great being able to, like, talk to you one-on-one, and and I, I just wanted to thank you for that. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you and talk to you. Well, Rebecca, thank you for bringing us that story. My pleasure. Thank you. And guys, I want to mention just one more thing. I actually had help producing that interview from our colleague, Samyukta Mahadevan at the Karsh Institute. She runs One Small Step in partnership with the Oral History Program at StoryCorps. There's a link to Diana and Lena's entire conversation on our website. (music) 
Steve, our listeners may not realize this, but you have been a vital friend of the show over the past couple of years. Through your work with the Karsh Institute's Democratic Futures Project, you've been bringing some extraordinarily brave pro-democracy activists to the University of Virginia. A few of them have been our guests on Democracy in Danger. Yeah, it's been a sort of a tremendous opportunity for these folks to be on Democracy in Danger. So many of them, because of their activism, have been either compelled or forced out of their home country. And when they live in exile, they lose a platform way to broadcast their concerns, their beliefs, and to sort of continue their advocacy. This podcast has been a very valuable tool for them to sort of continue that work. Well, recently you and I had the chance to speak with a Russian advocate for peace who has challenged Putin's regime. And in part because of her advocacy, she has been living in self-imposed exile with her family since 2015. Right. Her name is Evgenia Chirikova, and her activism actually began in environmentalism, but through the years it's expanded. Beginning in 2011, she became one of the leading figures who protested the Russian parliamentary elections. And that kind of changed her lens from environmentalism to politics. Um, The U.S. State Department recognized Evgenia with an International Women of Courage Award. More recently, she's been working to help the millions of refugees who have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion through an organization she founded called Aktivatika. Well, let's turn now to that conversation. We began by asking Evgenia just what Aktivatika is and what the group has been doing. We are Russian activists. Uh, we decided to organize an anti-war network. We uh, have very good opportunity to support Ukraine refugees and Ukraine. Uh, because, unfortunately, after annexation of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk, uh, Mariupol and other part of uh, Ukraine, Russian troops sent to Russia a huge part of Ukraine population. And these people come through filtration camps without any resource. And uh, our volunteers from our anti-war network help these refugees to escape uh, from Russia to safe countries. And we organize uh, seven shelters, Poland, uh, Estonia, uh, Montenegro, Turkey, Armenia, Georgia, and uh, Bulgaria. You know, Being uprooted from your home and your community is a traumatic experience. And in the middle of war, uh, the risks of being injured or losing family members, it must be very, very difficult. What is the state of mind of the refugees you have encountered? What are they dealing with? Oh, it's a very important question for us because uh, a lot of refugees came from occupied territories and we uh, spoke with these uh, people and on Aktivatika you can find some interview with uh, refugees from Ukraine about their experience, war experience and experience on Russian filtration camps. And well, we organize a food uh, um, support and and uh, humanitarian aid for them, and of course, school for uh, children of Ukraine refugees. For us, it's extremely important uh, to support them. And we decided to open a special uh, center for Ukraine refugees with uh, mental problems because it's really very, very difficult to support these people. And I try to attract resources for continuous working of this shelter because we have like volunteers and a lot of people have a problem with burning out and very tight, but we continue to help refugees. And recently we organized support for Ukraine directly. 
after destroying of uh, a peaceful infrastructure by uh, Putin's rockets and bombs, we made decision to send generators and pills and emergency cars directly to Ukraine. Uh, Evgenia, you mentioned there wasn't really a history of organizing when you were young. And so you sort of created a career, got married, had children. And then suddenly in 2007, with a very calm, stable, happy life, you stepped out of that role and tried to think about becoming an organizer and taking all the risks involved. So can you tell us a little bit about what led you to suddenly become an environmentalist and what made you at that moment step forward into the public domain? Oh, it's, it was an interesting time for me because I was pregnant uh, with my second child and I didn't have any ideas about grassroots activism. <laughs> I was ordinary businesswoman and uh, I was very surprised when I uh, have a, a, a small w- uh, walk uh, uh, to forest with my husband and we get a very bad surprise when we find information that they decided to cut down uh, two thousand hectares of uh, forest, Himki forest, for uh, motorway and for infrastructure and development. And uh, we decided to respond and uh, step by step we organized activity to save Himki forest because we found other way to build motorway. And uh, for us, it was a surprise that our authorities organized a horrible campaign against us, ordinary people who only want to save our lovely forest. I never have any experience grassroots activity before that. And uh, we, uh, we tried to find other grassroots movement on Russia 16 years ago, but it was absolutely Absolutely impossible. We could not. And I tried to find information about grassroots activity on other countries. And we decided to use the same methods, meetings, rallies, pickets, and we use it. And it was absolutely inspiring experience for us. Your work started protecting a forest. You began as an environmental activist, but pretty quickly this became a political undertaking. Isn't that right? So how did that happen? And what were the consequences? Uh, first moment, we uh, were not realized that it's a political issue, our grassroots activity. But step by step, we realized that we need to take part on uh, election. And we need to change policy of uh, 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 our region. But it was impossible because when I uh, uh, took part on uh, mayor election on Himke, I could not win because we have uh, a, a, a huge problem with independent election on Russia. And step by step, we became a part of uh, a huge uh, uh, new movement because uh, on uh, 2010, 2011, we have a movement and we demand uh, uh, to organize a normal election on Russia. And we became a part of this huge movement with Alexei Navalny and uh, Boris Nemtsov and other opposition leaders because we are like activists had demand to democratic change and normal institutions. So you ended up having to leave Russia for a variety of reasons, and you're now in Estonia. But I think we're all aware that Putin is quite willing to reach across borders to continue to crack down on dissidents. And I can imagine a moment 
when you must have thought, well, maybe I should just stop now. I'm safe. I'm in Estonia. Why didn't you at that moment quit? And aren't you afraid for your safety, your family's safety, for those you work with, your colleagues, both in Estonia and in Russia? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, of course, I had a problem with FSB because one day FSB knocked at my door and tried to take my children from my family and fabricate against me criminal case uh, of terrorism. And uh, uh, I remember that it was really very difficult because uh, Putin's regime to organize against uh, me personally and against my friends, uh, grassroots activists. But it was not my reason to move to Estonia. My reason was when, uh, uh, when Putin's regime attacked Ukraine. Because I realized I don't want to pay taxes to this aggressive country. And I want to change uh, uh, type of my uh, activity. I want to organize support of grassroots groups within Russia. But uh, I want to organize its safety because I realize that I am uh, very, very famous on Putin's Russia. And I cannot to help uh, normally because uh, uh, immediately Putin regime attacked people who collaborate with me. And we decided to change scheme of our job and we organize Activatica.org. It's media for uh, sharing information about uh, grassroots activists and important uh, grassroots actions. And at uh, the same time, we organize a special uh, services for grassroots activists. Evgenia, tell us a little bit more about Activatica. What are its goals um, you've gone from building up a single-issue grassroots movement to building a kind of network, a hub for many other grassroots organizations in Russia and in the region. How does it work? Uh, where does your funding come from? And how do you measure success? Oh, thank you a lot for this question. Uh, our goal was to give a voice for grassroots activists to change uh, mentality of uh, Russian civil society and to explain that activism is a normal behavior. It's a good activity. At this moment, we uh, try to share information about any grassroots activity within Russia. And uh, we try to uh, share legal support and uh, uh, mini grants program and uh, true information about Russian activism. And at this moment, for us, it's extremely important to change mentality of people who really believe Putin's propaganda machine. Wow. Uh, Evgenia, I'm going to take us back a little bit in your into in, history because I'm a historian. And I, I, I know from your biography that um, you remember the end of the Cold War yeah. and the way that communism collapsed, the Soviet Union fell apart, Europe was changed, and it seemed like a very optimistic moment. Can you tell us a little bit about that turning point in history, um, what you thought about it at the time, and how it influences your work today, this sense of the memory of that era? I remember this time very good because I was a pupil on a Soviet Union school and I remember that we don't have uh, books on our school uh, during the perestroika time. 
And of course, it impact on my activity now because I know, I remember Soviet Union time and we had changing my country immediately. And I know that any disgusting regime collapse. And I believe that together we can win and we can change Russia. Yeah, so it can happen. Yes, and I hope that we, uh, uh, on the future, we organize a normal democracy, Russia. It's possible because uh, first moment uh, uh, after collapse of Soviet Union, uh, we are ordinary Russians, didn't have any experience with organization something. But at this moment, uh, we have skills of organization. For example, at this moment, we have a very strong anti-war movement and a lot of Russian activists take a big part on, on this activity. And I hope that these skills help us to show a normal face of Russia, because Russia is not aggressive face of Putin's regime. We have a lot of normal people. <laughs> Certainly Russia's had a very troubled relationship with democracy, but can you imagine a democratic future for Russia? And is there any way you think the Ukrainian war and the sort of the activism against it might ultimately help produce that future? Oh, it's my my big dream to return to, to Russia and organize a normal democracy state. And I believe that thanks of our activity like a grassroots activist on our anti-war uh, network. It's helped us, it's give us a special skills uh, for uh, uh, building of new democracy Russia. Why it's uh, possible? Because uh, we are, Russian activists, have demand to democratic changing of Russian people within Russia. And I believe that uh, uh, we are Russian activists return uh, from Europe, from America, with, uh, uh, with this knowledge. For example, I lived during eight years on uh, excellent and democracy country, Estonia. And I, I hope that I can use these skills on my uh, motherland, on Russia. It's my dream. Evgenia Chirikova, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today on Democracy in Danger. And I just want to say again how much we admire and appreciate the work that you're doing. Oh, thank you a lot. Thank you. And have a nice day. Evgenia Chirikova is a founder of Activatica.org, a Russian language portal for pro-democracy activists and journalists. In 2012, she received the Goldman Environmental Prize for her defense of Himki Forest and was named by Foreign Policy magazine as a top global thinker. She resides currently in Tallinn, Estonia, with her husband and their two daughters. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back. Steve, that's a remarkable conversation with some truly inspirational young people. And I just wanted to know from your experience with so many activists that you've collaborated with, you know, what makes them tick? These young people have maintained such a positive demeanor. Their outlook is not negative. It seems as if they're 
unbelievably optimistic given the horrors that they've endured, the traumas, uh, the moving from one city to another, being in exile. How do they come to this sense of commitment and, uh, and, and bring such positive energy? You know, I think as I work with advocates, there's sort of two buckets in a sense. There's the individual who grew up wanting to be political, studied political philosophy, joined a political party, and that's been their like reason for being almost since birth. But there's another set, and I think it's the far larger set, and it's people who get motivated by what they think of as a non-controversial issue. Like it's a book club, it's a culture club, it's the environment, you know, like wanting to save trees. And as they start the process, they begin to feel like the authoritarian clapback. And I think a couple things happen there all at once. One, I think they realize that sort of authority will come down on them, but they can survive. I mean, Evgenia was going to lose her kids. She didn't lose her kids. So she begins to realize that what is seemingly a monolithic immense power actually has fractures and weaknesses in it. And I think the other thing is that as they realize there are fractures and weaknesses, they begin to see that they're not alone, that there are other people who feel this way. And as those people coalesce and have that consistent experience of surviving the repression, they begin to sort of have what we call courage. I have a very good friend um, who said when he was first arrested, if they'd have put him in jail for two weeks, he never would have been an activist again because he was so afraid. But they put him in jail for five years, and he realized he could survive. And once he realized he survived, he became very dangerous to the authoritarian leaders. Steve, Diana is in Kharkiv, a few miles from the front. She's 16 years old. She's still maintaining her schoolwork to the extent that she can, and that to the extent she has electricity to do it. She's beginning to offer online counseling services, or at least set up facilities for that. And her voice is so filled with the sense of positivity and, and a, a sense of enthusiasm. You know, this is something I think doesn't get talked about enough, that the advocates I talk to, and Diana is a perfect example of that, find incredible joy and meaning in what they're doing. Evgenia says that, you know, she is her happiest when she is doing this, and you can hear the joy in Diana's voice. So I think sometimes we imagine advocacy is this horrific daily experience, and there are certainly horrible moments, but we're missing that like the act of working for others in the work of justice, for human rights, for the embedment of democracy, fills you with joy and purpose. That is something we should think about when we hear the voice of Agenia and we hear Diana. You know, that sense of courage that you talk about and the sense of purpose that comes out in these young activists, certainly I think people in the West have looked to Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, and felt a degree of admiration for his courage in the face of unspeakable uh, challenges. Uh, it'll be decades before Ukraine can get back up on its feet. But there's another thread that runs through Ukraine's tragedy, and that is the way that the Western world has responded, in part to Zelensky's courage, but also to the plight of Ukrainians. So NATO is beginning to expand its numbers into the notoriously independent and neutral Scandinavian uh, world. The West has come together and spent billions on economic aid and on military aid to supply Ukraine with uh, weapons and with food and other resources. The allies are speaking a common language of, of moral purpose, of saving democracy in the face of Russian brutality. I do admire how the West has come together to support Ukraine. And I do think there's been a revitalization of the notion of saving democracy. But out of respect for the advocates I work with in Myanmar and in Syria, I just want to note 
the, the reanimation of democracy is Western democracy, from what I can tell, because you have China and you have Russia actively supporting the military regime in Myanmar, and the U.S. has done little or nothing to support people who are suffering equal, if not worse, human rights violations from the military ruling authority. You have sort of a dissipation of interest in Syria, sort of an acceptance that Assad is going to stay in power at the cost, deep human cost of the people who live in Syria and the Kurds who are sort of living on the edge of Syria and Turkey. So, Although I admire what the West has done for Ukraine, I think we need to think about it in a global context and think about whether we're letting go of our commitment to democracy. That does it for this episode. We'll be back in two weeks' time with legal scholar Bertrand Ross. And we'll ask Bertrand what's going on with our own electoral systems in the United States. Voter suppression arises in contexts where there is fear of democratic change. And your fear of democratic change leads you to redirect that fear towards the election process itself. You can find us on Twitter in the meantime at DND Podcast. That's D-I-N-D Podcast. Drop us a line. We want to hear from you. You can also visit our webpage, dendanger.org. We've got show notes, links to Diana's essay, stuff we're reading, and powerful images for each episode. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengall and Rebecca Berry. Ellie Bashkow engineers the show. Our interns are Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Special thanks this time to Diana's teacher, Natalia Babacheva. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences, the show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Steve Parks. Siva will be back next time. 